Hello and welcome to the Gender and Development podcast brought to you by the Gender and Development Journal. Hello everyone and welcome to this Gender and Development podcast. I'm Liz Cook and I'm the Assistant Editor at the Gender and Development Journal. Today we're going to be talking about women's rights and the United Nations. This year sees the 25th anniversary of the landmark UN Fourth World Conference on Women, which was held in Beijing in 1995. The conference itself and the NGO forum which preceded it constituted a watershed moment for women's rights at the UN and indeed for international women's movements. The conference resulted in the Beijing Platform for Action, which was a commitment by governments from around the world to transform women's lives and to work to achieve gender equality across a number of key areas, including the economy, politics, health and gender based violence. Now, 2020 was to have seen a number of high level UN events to mark Beijing plus 25, as it's being called, along with a major assessment of the progress made towards gender equality since the 1995 conference and platform for action. However, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of these plans have been put on hold. Gender and Development, though, is delighted to have produced our own contribution to this milestone year in the shape of our July 2020 Beijing plus 25 issue. With me are four feminist activists, two of whom were at Beijing in 1995 and all of whom have contributed articles to our Beijing Plus 25 journal issue. And we're going to be talking together today about the significance of Beijing for women's rights and gender equality. Let me introduce my guests. First, we have Lebanese activist and academic Lina Abu Habib, who is a senior policy fellow at the Issam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University in Beirut, where she's joining us from today. Hello, Lina. Hello, Liz. Also with us is Melissa Upreti. Melissa is Senior Director of Programme and Advocacy at the Centre for Women's Global Leadership at Rutgers University in the States. And Melissa is speaking to us from New Jersey. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Liz. We're also joined by Ulemu Kanyangolu, and Ulemu is the founder of the Young Feminist Network in Malawi, and she's currently studying law at the University of Malawi. And she's joining us from Zomba. Hi, Ulemu. Hi, Liz. Thanks for having me. And last but definitely not least, we have with us Anne-Marie Gertz, who is a clinical professor at the Center for Global Affairs at New York University in the States. And she's speaking to us from there. Hello, Anne-Marie. Hey, Liz. And hi, Lena, Melissa and Ulemu. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you very much indeed, all of you, for joining me from your respective locations and some of you from lockdown. First of all, I'd like to ask those of you who were there, that's Lena and Anne-Marie, what capacity you were there in and what did Beijing mean to you? And if we could start with Lena. Sure. Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm very excited about the uh, special issue of gender and development on Beijing Plus 25. I can't tell you how important it was to put together this issue and how timely it was, even if the Beijing Plus 25 convening 
is now left in limbo. But back to 1995, I was there as part of the um, group representing Oxfam GB. There were five of us. I speak a little bit about this in, in the chapter. So in a sense, we were there as, as an international organization, but also most of what we were doing was actually work with civil society, work with women's rights organizations. I was particularly interested in working with women's groups from the, from the MENA region who were there. I'm quite happy now to remember in very significant number with very significant messages, also at a time that was quite interesting for the MENA region. What it meant for me, of course, the, the whole journey towards Beijing started before when the regional preparation started to take place. So it was, it was a very important opportunity to see what were feminists from my region doing and then go to India and see what was happening there in terms of preparations, in terms of mobilization, all levels, you know, grassroots, national and regional. Then see the importance of linking all of our work together, linking all of our messages, linking, you know, our analysis of what was happening in our respective context. So in a sense that for me personally, that was quite an important starting point for working even more intensively with the feminist movements in the region and beyond the region. But at this particular juncture in time, I was there as an Oxfam team member from the gender team. Thank you, Lena. Now, Anne-Marie, why were you at Beijing in 1995 and, and what did it mean to you? I had no role at Beijing. I My experience is kind of the experience that I, I would wish on all feminists, um, especially young feminists, because I was in my early 30s in, um, in the preparatory process in uh, 1994, and I had just got my, my first academic job after finishing my PhD. I was working at the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex University. And of course, I knew Beijing was happening, but I was not well networked. I wasn't part of any preparatory process, as Lena has described. In the article that Joanne Sandler and I contributed to this issue of gender and development, we describe how it was interesting that there was a lot of funding and organizing in the global south to prepare for Beijing in the two years leading up up to it, but not in the global north, which is fair enough and fine. But um, in many ways, ordinary feminists in the global north weren't all that attached to Beijing. I had not initially thought of going until one of my PhD students said, you know, it's crazy. Why can't we go? Isn't, isn't this for all feminists? And so we fundraised. We got a little group together. We kind of fabricated a reason to be there. We joined up to the, um, the NGO forum and uh, requested the opportunity to put on a seminar. We worked with two feminists from the University of East Anglia, Ruth Pearson and Cecile Jackson, and we organized a, um, a seminar on institutional reform, feminist institutional change called Breaking In, Speaking Out, which pretty much describes the process by which we got to Beijing in the first place. Now, the thing about it was that the Beijing conference had not initially been organized to be such a kind of inclusive and democratic process that ended up with 40,000 women. In many ways, the Chinese government was not encouraging of broad participation. It was very difficult to get a visa. This is pre-email days, remember, so it was all done by post. It was very slow and difficult, and also there was quite a lot of anxiety about the attitude of the Chinese authorities 
towards um, gay people. And so there was a lot of concern that there would be hostility towards feminists and LGBT individuals. And I think what was so interesting is that in my experience, we kind of transformed what was, you know, a pretty discouraging process initially into a a very democratic and participatory process, which ended up in uh, our small group getting there as as well as thousands of other women. What did Beijing mean to me? Well, it was almost like a secular pilgrimage towards a massive shot of feminist adrenaline and inspiration. I found it extraordinary. It was, I've described this to other people, is I thought I'd died and got to feminist heaven. All around me, I was seeing feminist activists that I'd read about or, you know, seen on TV or whatever. It was an extraordinary opportunity to lobby member states. I was in the NGO forum way out in Huairo. I think it was about 30 miles from Beijing. But we went back and forth. We were able to talk to national representatives and lobby them. But in addition, it was an extraordinary cultural event. There was tons of art and music and dancing and theater. For me personally, it was an extraordinary eye-opener for several different reasons. First of all, the excruciating weight of violence against women and girls was really brought home to me because from almost every country, this was the story that people were telling. And in particular for me, it was an eye-opener about Bosnia and Rwanda. Remember, this was 1995, and we still didn't even really realize the extent of sexual violence in Rwanda. And some of the activists from Central Africa and Rwanda and other places were starting to tell the stories of the atrocities. The other thing for me that was really important was I learned about the depth and seriousness of opposition to feminism. I came across a lot of right-wing activists, especially Catholic activists, actually, who were not just anti-abortion, but very hostile to the way the word gender was being used, hostile to the notion of women taking control of and changing the meaning of um, ascribed gender. So for me, it was it was an eye-opener in those respects. Thank you for that, Anne-Marie. Now, Melissa, you weren't there, but I'm just wondering what has been the influence or otherwise uh, for you of Beijing? I'd like to start by saying I'm really delighted to be part of this conversation and to to have the opportunity to share my little story about Beijing. I wasn't there in 1995, but it was still a very important year for me. 1995 is the year that I graduated from law school. I got married and I started my career as a volunteer in Nepal's oldest feminist advocacy organization, the Legal Aid and Consultancy Center. And that happened at a time when the executive director of the Legal Aid and Consultancy Center and many other senior activists in Nepal had just returned from Beijing, which meant that I started working with NGO leaders in Nepal who were filled with the vigor and vision inspired by the conference. And these phenomenal leaders, many of whom had been at the front line of Nepal's political struggle and the transition from an absolute monarchy to a new democracy, they really decided to hit the ground running with the Beijing Platform for Action. And one wonderful thing that they did, I think, sort of looking back now, is that they opened up the process to the next generation of aspiring women's rights advocates, including myself. So I got to learn from the best and be inspired 
by the spirit of the Beijing Platform for Action through them initially and then later on through my own research. Along with many others, as a result of my work at the Legal Aid and Consultancy Centre, I became part of a national movement with strong connections to the grassroots. And that was facilitated through a variety of training initiatives and opportunities to organize and volunteer. You know, the kind of stuff that you don't really get to do in law school, or at least did not get to do back then, which was about 25 years ago. So what happened was, you know, the the movement that followed in Nepal actually evolved as an intergenerational movement. Uh, which opened the doors to many young lawyers like me. And I'd say that the multidimensional and comprehensive scope of the Beijing Platform for Action really helped us create a process that brought together women's rights activists and technical experts and other key actors working in different areas uh, around a common agenda, which didn't center on only one issue, although one of the main themes that emerged was the elimination of discrimination against women as a matter of their human rights. The framework offered by the platform also allowed us to critically examine the role of our own government in these areas, and it really encouraged us to expect more from our government. It gave us a comprehensive political framework that allowed us to make really critical political demands, like things that we probably wouldn't have thought of until that point, until we had the framework in our hands. There was also a focused effort to build a national movement by connecting the so-called elites with activists and women's collectives at the grassroots level across Nepal. And it's actually this work that took me to rural Nepal and really helped deepen my understanding of the real context of women's lives. So even though I wasn't at Beijing, I think the power of the framework, the vision and excitement that it inspired in many really did shape uh, my thinking during the early days of my career. Thank you, Melissa. We know that progress for women's rights since Beijing has been patchy. Can I ask each of you bluntly why Beijing didn't change the world? If I could start with you, Lena. Yes, thank you for this question. I don't think a day passes without asking ourselves this question. What went wrong? What were the real challenges? Where did this old dynamism go, etc.? And then I remind myself that despite this particularly difficult moment that we're going through now, and maybe the pandemic even exacerbates all these difficulties. I honestly can't say that things haven't changed. I think things haven't changed enough, but looking from the perspective of being in this region with all the conflict, with all the economic crisis, with all the despots that rule our lives, with with all the the problems we have with religious institutions, with with conservatism, etc., the nature of the debate currently taking place now, the mutation of the social dialogue around feminism, around what do all women want, despite all of these challenges, the fact that we have moved as a movement way beyond the binary, the fact that women's voices are amazingly strong, amazingly strong in the face of militarism, in the face of fundamentalists who are, who are becoming stronger and stronger by, by the day. And I think Beijing has a lot to do with it. But I would have liked things to be way ahead in 2020. I, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to wake up like we did yesterday over a news of suicide of an LGBTQI young activist from 
Egypt, who has been put in jail, tortured by the Egyptian regime simply for raising the pride flag. She had to flee her country to be in Canada, but actually everything took its toll on her. I wouldn't have liked to wake up for, for, to, 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 to such news where activists, feminist activists, still can't be who they are, still are threatened by their society and by, and by our regimes, still are not pushed to the brink of, of committing suicide to get away from what our regimes are doing vis-a-vis feminist activists, vis-a-vis women human rights defenders. I definitely wouldn't have wanted this in 2020. But are we in the same place as 1995 in this region? I don't think so. Thanks, Lena. Anne-Marie, what do you see as having been the failings of Beijing? Yeah, like Lena, there's almost not a day that passes where I don't wonder about this. Let me start with the issue of timing and read to you a short passage from the Beijing Platform for Action. Quote, the end of the Cold War has resulted in international changes and diminished competition between the superpowers. The threat of a global armed conflict has diminished, while international relations have improved and prospects for peace among nations have increased. And it goes on to say, only a new era of international cooperation amongst governments and peoples based on a radical transformation of the relationship between women and men to one of full and equal partnership will enable the world to meet the challenges of the 21st century. So just reading that passage, I'm sure you can immediately see the contrast between then and now in terms of the environment and the atmosphere for radical change. And when I think about, you know, reasons why Beijing didn't change the world as it should have done, I think one of the first issues is of timing. The Beijing Platform for Action is a political settlement. It's an unusual political settlement that shows an enormous amount of optimism and visioning of cooperation for uh, change in a very difficult part of human relationships. Of course, things fell apart, um, the, the post-Cold War honeymoon, fell apart not too long after this. And I I think one of the timing problems was, uh, weirdly, and I'd need to investigate this more, but the Asian financial crisis of 1997. Because the Asian region, I think, was perhaps the most dynamic in picking up the platform for action and applying it to feminist activism and state policy, as um, Melissa uh, described partly because, of course, the conference had happened in the Asian region. And I do wonder whether the financial crisis at that particular moment was, you know, one of the first shots across the bows of kind of holding back the platform for action. There's a couple of other reasons why I think that there were real problems in in implementing this radical political settlement. One problem was the authority responsible for implementing it. So national women's machineries, women's ministries, women's commissions, we're taking the lead in implementing the platform for action. But these tend to be underpowered, underfinanced, lacking staff, and so on uh, in most places. It's not necessarily the most powerful implementing agent. Another problem, I think, uh, and this is saying this in retrospect, is a flaw in the content of the Beijing platform for action for all its radicalism. As Latin American activists pointed out at the time, it was missing content on uh, challenging neoliberal economic policies. 
Um, this was a matter of huge concern to Latin American activists, and they were right. And the world even then wasn't ready to really seriously challenge the hegemony of neoliberal ideas, which meant cuts in state funding, especially as financial crises started to come in. Those, I think, the issues of the implementing authority and the content and timing issues um, were problematic so that by the year 2000, when Kofi Annan hosted the UN's World Summit, he should have used the Beijing platform for action as the blueprint for progress and change. And instead, he turned to the eight point millennium development goals, which were developed without any feminist input and with a very reductive uh, goal on gender equality, which was uh, gender parity in primary education, which was extremely disappointing. And that, I think, was perhaps the most damaging thing to happen to the Beijing platform for action. Thanks, Amory. Now, Melissa, as we know, you weren't at Beijing, but uh, if you could just give us an idea where for you Beijing has gone wrong. Yeah, I'm a big believer in action. And I think we all know that words alone cannot change anything. It really is the actions that follow that count. In my mind, I don't think Beijing or the platform for action has turned out to be a failure because I see one of many tools that we have at our disposal to hold governments accountable, to push for policy reform. And it's a framework that we need to supplement with the realities of women's lives on the ground. So for me, it's a, it's not something that's, that's failed and is over and has ended, but it's one of the many things that we can continue to use when we engage with our governments and to seek the kind of change that we need to see. That being said, I think some of the barriers that have really undermined its implementation and the realization of some of the lofty goals is really the lack of political will of governments. And I think that has been the biggest barrier, as well as the lack of financial investment in women by most governments. Now, even though in most countries, women make up around half the population, if not more, the reality is that they still have very little political power and even less access to resources of the state. Women are typically not the decision makers, which means that their priorities have been sidelined. And I believe that much of this is intentional. It's not something that has happened by accident, but it's really meant to keep women as a class in a constant state of subordination. So I feel that we clearly live in a world where women's bodies continue to be instrumentalized through patriarchal domination. Um, their participation in public life, including governance, is limited. And most still do not have even the basic economic security that they need to be out there to, to demand change. So while on the one hand we've had Beijing and we've had its follow-up conferences where many commitments have been made by governments, these same governments remain structurally flawed in the sense that they lack the strong presence of women who believe in the human rights of women, who believe in gender equality, and as a result, they have simply not done enough. It really isn't the failure of the platform for action. I think it's the failure of people. So most governments today are still not fulfilling their promises under policy documents like the Beijing Platform for Action. But I think it's important to remember that they are also not meeting their basic legal obligations under international law. And this is exactly why we need to use both. We need to use treaties in combination with consensus documents. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that women have achieved many critical gains 
And this is thanks mainly to local and national movements and the courageous efforts of human rights defenders around the world. Now, my country, Nepal, is a strong example of positive gains. And I know that there are many more, but we have not achieved the level of political power and influence that we need to fundamentally transform systems and structures as envisioned in the Platform for Action. Yes, we have made great progress, but there has indeed been a backlash against women's rights. And the continued attacks on women's human rights defenders shows that the fight for gender equality is fraught with all kinds of risks and challenges. And what troubles me the most is the impunity that we see for the attacks on human rights defenders. I think the level of violence, which includes assassinations, not just threats and intimidation, is incredibly shocking and disturbing. But at the same time, what gives me hope is that women have not given up the struggle and we must not stop. Uh, we must not stop fighting for accountability. And in fact, some of the most important accountability mechanisms in place today um, to advance women's human rights really did come about as a result of advocacy by women's rights activists since the 90s. So Beijing is one of many tools and we need to use them all. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that last year was the 25th anniversary of the ICPD program of action. Next year is the 25th anniversary of the Durban World Conference on Racism. So let's think about how we can use the outcome documents of these different conferences in combination with everything else we have at our disposal to really push for reform and realize the vision established by each. Thank you, Melissa. Now, I'd like to bring Olemu into the conversation. Uh, Olemu, a generation on from Beijing, women are facing massive challenges from poverty, inequality and a backlash against women's rights. You founded the Young Feminist Network in Malawi, and I know you attended the Young Women's Africa Regional Consultation in the lead up to Beijing Plus 25. Can I ask you, first of all, if you'd actually heard of the 1995 Beijing Conference and Platform for Action prior to taking part in this regional consultation? Uh, yes, I'd actually heard about the Beijing platform because when I was in second year, I'm now in fourth year. So when I was in second year in 2018, I'd taken an optional course, a gender course. And amongst the many documents, the legal documents that we uh, had spoken about, the Beijing platform came up. But I don't even think that the way we were taught about the platform, I don't think it did it justice because hearing all these stories about um 1995 and how it came about, I think it's evident that it was a very monumental, it is still a very monumental document and that this, the convening of so many activists and feminists from the world over was um, a historical moment, but I didn't know about the platform to that extent. So it's just something that I'd heard in passing. And I actually think that we discussed other documents or illegal instruments in more depth than we ever did the Beijing platform. So, of course, I knew about CEDO and the Maputo Protocol and other legal documents, but about the Beijing platform, I'd only heard about it in passing. I think that just goes to show that despite it being such a monumental document, 25 years on, or even maybe 20 years or 22 years on, there has to be something that did go wrong, as has just been discussed. So, of course, it wasn't a total failure, but I think something happened that led to the waning of the relevance of the platform because I knew about it because I decided to take that gender course, which was optional. But a lot of people 
still don't know about the Beijing Platform for Action. So if even those of us who are in law school or those of us who are in university don't even know about the um, Beijing Platform for Action, then it just goes to show that a lot of people don't know. Think about the ordinary girl, for instance, here in Malawi, the ordinary girl in the village. She's definitely not going to know about the platform. So I did know about it just a little bit. I didn't know just how monumental it was. So I think it's this is actually a great opportunity for me to hear more about it. And also the regional consultation was also um, a very valuable moment because um, we were able to interact with people who were actually there during um, the conference. So we're able to gain more insight. I had a broader perspective after the regional consultation. That's great. Thank you, Alemu. And I'm wondering now if you could tell us about some of the burning issues you're working on today and whether you think the original Beijing conference and the 2019 regional consultation you took part in are actually relevant and helpful for addressing these issues. So the the irony in it is that out of all the 12 areas of concern that were stipulated in the Beijing Platform for Action, all all of those are still relevant today. And those are issues that young feminists and the young feminist network as well are still battling with. Those are still burning issues. Health, education, poverty, all of them are still relevant today. But as the young feminist network, um, some of the issues that we are, are dealing with right now, particularly in our work, violence against women and girls in secondary and tertiary institutions. So we've had interventions in secondary schools where we've spoken to young girls and boys about gender issues and positive masculinities, as well as violence against women and girls in tertiary institutions. So uh, that sexual harassment, there was the recent um, video or the docu-series, if we can call it that, that the BBC released um, for the sex for grades. And it was about how um, professors in universities are taking advantage of um, the female students and sexually harassing them in exchange for giving them better grades. And this is just an indication of what's happening across the, con- the, the world, actually, not just the continent or in Nigeria or Ghana, but across the world. So that is one of the burning issues that we are also dealing with, particularly at the University of Malawi and universities across the country. And we're also um, one of the burning issues that we're also addressing is sexual and reproductive health and rights. Because we know that, um, as has already been explained, due to people's beliefs, uh, social cultural context, uh, these are things that people aren't willing to receive with open hands. So I think it's still a battle that we have to fight because particularly, particularly in our context, there are many, there are many things that play a role in uh, acting as an obstacle to the advancement of women's rights. So there's religion, but there's also culture. So I think it's an important conversation for us to facilitate and to continue to have and to push for change regarding sexual and reproductive health and rights. And another burning issue which is very relevant today is violence against women and girls in cyberspace. So because of the increased use of technology and social media, violence against women and girls is now manifesting itself in cyberspace. So it's happening digitally. And this is posing new problems because these are things that weren't envisaged, um, let's say, in 1995. It's not something that could have been foreseen. And so sometimes there are obstacles due to the intergenerational gap that exists in the broader feminist movement. And so this is something that we're trying to address. And I think that the Beijing conference and as well as the 2019 regional consultation 
are relevant in addressing these issues because the Beijing Platform for Action addressed a broad spectrum of issues, just as I stated, poverty, education, health, and this speaks to the issues today. Um, the issues are very broad and they're all interrelated, so it definitely is relevant. Um, however, as I said, for instance, with the cyberspace and digital rights, there are new issues that have come about. So I think that leaves uh, that leaves a gap in terms of the application of the Beijing uh, Platform for Action. And so it is relevant. However, with the new issues, um, it becomes hard to use it to address uh, those obstacles. And the 2019 regional consultation, it was relevant in addressing these issues because it afforded a platform to young feminist activists from across Africa to discuss these issues. There were people, there were activists, there were young professionals, students, as well as um, people who were there during the Beijing conference. So we're able to have dialogue on these issues. However, I think one of the challenges with the 2019 regional consultation was firstly the format. So as I, I go deeper into this in the article, but um, the format of it was such that the issues couldn't be addressed. One person couldn't um, be a part of all the discussions because they were taking place simultaneously. So it was difficult for the young, for us young people to be involved in many conversations at a time. And so we missed out on opportunities to talk about other issues that we may have been passionate about or may have wanted to talk about. And it wasn't as inclusive as it should have been. I know that they made efforts. There were um, a lot of groups or a lot of uh, a lot of young women who were represented at the conference. But I think in terms of, for instance, the LGBTQI community was underrepresented and we didn't speak about issues of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity as much as we should have. And I think that's due to maybe, I don't know if it's conservatism or maybe the fact that it wasn't in the Beijing platform for action as as much as we we wanted to talk about it. So maybe that's the reason why. And also there weren't um, many young women from rural areas. And I think that had had to have been taken into account. They could it could have been a bit more inclusive, but the issues that were um, addressed were definitely relevant. Thank you, Ulaimu. Now, Lena, you've also been involved in the lead up to Beijing Plus 25 in the regional consultations. Do you feel a synergy between that process and what's needed for feminist transformation in your your current location of Lebanon and in the Middle East more widely? So I still am part of a regional convening of uh, uh, independent and I insist on independent because it's 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 related to women organizations, feminist organizations who are not in any way part of the tentacles of regimes here in the region. Um, And for most of us, Beijing Plus 25 has been seen as an opportunity to come together again um, to work towards um, to work towards new goals that what the MENA region is is going through now, but also highlight where the gaps are and go back again to the accountability of of, uh, of our regimes here. And in this particular uh, process hasn't stopped hasn't stopped. We were actually all extremely disappointed in the beginning when CSW, the Commission on the Status of Women, was, well, they called it scaled down. I think I would call it cancelled. That was a major disappointment because that was supposed to be the first step towards all the CSO mobilization towards Beijing. Nevertheless, 
This was happening at a time where uh, MENA region was facing renewed challenges, renewed challenges in terms of the new forms of oppression, a new form of uh, aggression vis-a-vis women human rights defenders, what we call now all too often the shrinking of the uh, uh, civic space, thus making Beijing Plus 25 even more so important as a process, as a connection with global, with the global feminist movement, but also as a space to, uh, to express one's anger, I might say one's feminist anger, but also the renewed demands of the, the feminists of, in, in the region. But also, uh, it was for us a time, and it's still a time, to reflect over what did we miss in Beijing? What should we make sure to bring into that you know, 25th celebration? And I have to say that despite the fact that the process was put on hold because of the pandemic, it did give us a, a very important window of opportunity. More time for the regional preparation and, and regional organization, and also uh, more time for our own analysis for having more of a clarity in terms of what the messages from the re- what the feminist messages from the from the region would uh, would look like especially and that's my last point especially when we we saw right before the process was put on hold how keen all our regimes in the region were um, to take over the process and that you know that's the fact that we have more time now for the preparation is actually incredibly important and and strategic. Great. Thank you, Lena. If I can turn to Anne-Marie now. Anne-Marie, you've worked in the UN and seen gender issues mainstreamed, in inverted commas, into national and international policy and governance with all the attendant thrills and spills of that. In your article in the issue, which you wrote with Joanne Sandler, you really question the role of the UN in women's rights activism. Do you ultimately see a continuing role for the UN as a key driver for women's human rights globally? And if you do, what do you think that role should be? Thanks, Liz. I think we're all asking about the relevance of the UN right now. It's relative paralysis in the face of the COVID pandemic, as well as, of course, the longstanding uh, sort of stalemate around actions to end certain conflicts where there's great power investments such as Syria or um, conflicts involving genocide uh, such as the Rohingya or the the Uyghurs. Um, So the, the UN has been disappointing. This is a matter of concern for everyone right now. Uh, the article that Joanne Sandler and I wrote points out that the the way that the um, 25th anniversary of Beijing has been approached actually is to avoid multilateral negotiations. The, uh, the idea of having meetings in France and Mexico, these are not multilateral meetings that are universal. And this has implicitly recognized how profoundly multilateralism has deteriorated in relation to the negotiations that are needed to update the platform for action, update and re-energize the political settlement around equality um, in the ways that were referenced by um, Ulemu, for example. This is this is very problematic because, I mean, in our article, while we point out that um, the approach to the anniversary is a sign of um, a real faltering of multilateralism. We we do end up defending the need for multilateral approaches to gender equality, 
Because in our view, what the UN does, it does something that no other institution does. And, and let's be clear, there's plenty of other ways that women are organizing transnationally. There's regional and global um, meetings and um, campaigns and so on around all kinds of aspects of women's rights. But what the UN offers that no other group does are at least two huge advantages. One is um, the UN enables feminist organizations to engage with all the states of the world. And the UN offers a unique brokering function, um, which it makes it an essential partner to feminists in scaling up innovative practices around the world. And the second thing that the UN does, and, and it could do it a lot better, is that the UN offers a mediating function. And it's not been used much in relation to gender, and it needs to be because the UN provides an opportunity for women and feminists to encounter um, opponents and to have debates with opponents in ways that are that are not actually that easy to um, organize peacefully elsewhere. So there's we, we end up saying in our article that there's four things that the UN could do. So the UN must remain relevant, but it's got to make some changes in order to be relevant to global feminism. Um, so the first one is to perform this mediation function that I mentioned more effectively and more mindfully and consciously. Um, the UN needs to um, to really help organize encounters for resolving some differences that can be resolved between feminists and, and those who oppose uh, women's rights. The second is um, the UN is a good forum for CSOs to engage with in terms of critiquing the UN's own performance and failures, its own longstanding uh, sort of habit of neglecting some of its own gender equality goals. So CSOs should be tracking the UN's own performance and exposing its failures more effectively and also helping the UN uh, to do something that the UN always finds uncomfortable, which is you know, the, the UN doesn't like to criticize member states. It doesn't like to rank member states. But really, the UN should be helping to to sort of show um, variations in performance between member states. And this is a function that the CSW, the Commission on the Status of Women, has always evaded. Um, third, there really needs to be some form of formal representation of feminist voices in key UN institutions. And by that, I would, I mean, uh, or we mean a seat for feminist organizations for CSOs on UN Women's Executive Board and a more structured space for feminist organizations at the Commission on the Status of Women. Finally, um, more uh, funding is needed for feminist organizations on the ground. The UN should be a better um, mechanism should have better mechanisms for channeling financing to women's organizations on the ground. One last point I would say about making the UN relevant, which we do not discuss in the article, but there is a feminist campaign to um, demote the Holy See, the Vatican, uh, from its uh, position as a formal observer, which gives it an outside voice in, in particular in CSW negotiations. And that's just not right. It it is uh, it has an outsized influence and it's used that position very strategically to attack women's rights. And the U.N. really can't be an instrument um, for gender justice as long as um, the Holy See has this observer seat. 
Thank you, Anne-Marie. Now, Melissa, I'm going to turn to you. You have been key to an innovative global civil society initiative in the lead up to Beijing. And this is called FW Map. And it aims to inject women's real priorities into the process around global action on women's rights into the future. Can you tell us about this activist project and what your next steps are when it comes to holding power holders to account on women's rights? This is a civil society process that is independent of the UN. And the co-drivers are Sunyam Yoon and Kushanti Dharmaraj. And we have been working very closely with NGO CSW, specifically Huri and her incredible team in moving this process forward. Last summer, when we started our work, we recognized that there is no single civil society perspective on Beijing plus 25. So we decided to come together to develop an approach that really puts human rights at the center of the agenda, underscored by feminist values that stress women's autonomy, agency and inclusion. Now, a human rights approach allows us to really emphasize the interdependence and interrelatedness of women's issues and their human rights. And it also allows us to speak in a way more directly to states and other actors about their role in ensuring gender equality in terms of binding legal obligations, because ensuring gender equality is certainly not an option for states, but it is a legal duty. So this is an ongoing process, and we are aiming to build a transformative common framework, which requires us to link across silos of activism, research, policy, and leadership to build a common framework. And this is actually the part that excites me the most, the idea of breaking silos and bringing together different kinds of expertise and insights and learning. And, you know, it doesn't mean that anyone should abandon their own work, but we really do need to start looking for points of convergence so that we can join forces intellectually and through movements around certain common goals. Now, we do recognize that we also have an opportunity here with Beijing 25 to to build on the incredible work that has been done over the years, especially at the local and national levels, as well as regional and global, and contribute to building new alliances and really harnessing the power of movements and to connect different struggles and constituencies. And all of this can really contribute to encouraging more strategic utilization of the mechanisms that we have at our disposal, including human rights mechanisms that focus on women's rights that have been created under the aegis of the United Nations, which could also potentially strengthen some of the mediating role that was noted by Anne-Marie, as well as help establish a stronger feminist presence within the larger UN space. Now, for us, Beijing 25 is also a moment that gives all of us feminists and women's rights activists Um, a chance to really think about game-changing outcomes. You know, how far have we come and where do we need to go? And what are some of the most crucial things that we need to make happen that can have really broad transformative effect? And I think some of those conversations started to happen earlier this year. And we, we were able to facilitate some of those through the FWMAP process as well. Now, we know that all too well that you know, spaces do get hijacked by organized opponents of women's rights. And we've seen that happen again and again at many different levels and in different spaces, including within the United Nations. And opponents of our rights are very quick to take advantage 
of even the tiniest vacuum or crack or disagreement. And so in a way, we can't really afford to have too many fault lines within the larger women's movement or among different movements. And we really need to find a way to build consensus, even when we largely disagree. And the way to do this, as per the FW map, is really by taking a truly feminist approach and committing to fully respecting women's agency and autonomy and really giving precedence to ensuring that the human rights of all women are realized based on their lived realities. And this is really going to require more of us to come together, to start talking to each other and to think about ways to work together. Now, the FW map process has been designed in a way, or at least we've tried our best to design it in a way to really offer a brave and safe space where people can agree to disagree, recognizing that women's lives are far more important than a set of personal beliefs and we do need to move together to operationalize human rights. I think that's one of the biggest gaps. The implementation gap is one of the biggest, still one of the biggest challenges that we face. Now, of course, COVID-19 disrupted our plans, but we have been very busy. So, for example, we've been working with a team of activists and academics to design teach-ins, building on the premise of the FW map to really spread knowledge about Beijing, um, the platform for action, but also all the other instruments and standards that we have at our disposal to really build activism in academic institutions, but through those institutions in local communities. And we will be publishing a written product the, of the a rep a version of the Feminist uh, Women's Movement in Action Plan, which will reflect the expertise and perspectives that have come through the conversations and hopefully it will be used by activists to demand more meaningful action from their governments. Melissa, thank you. And now my last question. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted the ways that the Beijing milestone was going to be marked and progress assessed at the UN level this year. I'd like to ask each of you in conclusion, what impact do you think the pandemic is having on women's rights and gender equality right now? And what are the consequences likely to be as we move into the future? Uh, if I can start with you, Elaimu. I think the consequences of the pandemic uh, for the women's rights and gender equality uh, movement as a whole for activists, I think uh, it's made it evident that we need to rethink the way that we work because um, this was, these are unforeseen circumstances that have taken place. And particularly for us young feminists, this is something that hasn't happened before. We've never experienced it. And so during these times, we're finding it difficult to reach out to people, for instance, young women in rural areas who don't have access to technology because most of our work now we're doing online. So we're engaging in a lot of online dialogue or uh, posting things on our social media pages, which means that the information that we're disseminating to the public isn't reaching certain people. So I think it's just brought to light that we really need to be more inclusive in our thinking in the future, just in case something like this was to happen again, or even just to be more inclusive henceforth. So I think um, there are lessons to be learned from the pandemic, and um, we'll definitely take them into account going forward with our work. Thanks, Suleimu. Now, Melissa, what do you think the consequences of the COVID pandemic are for women's rights and gender equality? My reactions to COVID have kind of evolved and also fluctuated, I think, over the course of the year, initially when CSW was basically cancelled as a result of the pandemic and the threat that it posed. I was I was devastated. <laughs> um, 
you know, like many others, uh, a lot of time and effort had gone into preparations for CSW. There were all kinds of plans that we had, events, etc. that suddenly we were not able to do anymore. And I really did feel like we had been robbed of a really important opportunity to come together once again globally. But this time, sort of maybe sort of in a different frame of mind, sort of really looking at 22 2020 as a game changing year. You know, that's how we had been talking about game, uh, 2020, that this has to be a game changing year. We have to celebrate the anniversary of Beijing um, with that kind of spirit. Um, but I think since March, now that we're sort of in the middle of the year, I feel like 2020 has indeed turned out to be a game changing year, but of course, in a different way. Um, it's become an incredible opportunity, I think, for us to go beyond what we think uh, might be politically possible and to really push for things that might not have even been considered by our governments and other authorities during, quote unquote, normal times. So while some have described the current situation as a portal, others as an apocalyptic moment, Either way, I think it really is a time for radical ideas. And feminists have been doing radical thinking for years and for decades. But it really is time for those ideas to surface and to come together or to be brought together, rather, and then to be integrated into um, our vision now for recovery and resilience. Because at best, we may not get another opportunity to make such a huge difference locally and globally. Um, at a systemic level. And at worst, this might not be the last pandemic or crisis of a global scale. So I do truly believe that we need to come out of our silos and we do need to take into account existential threats. For example, those of us who have not been working directly on environmental issues, including myself, um, I feel like we really need to start thinking about its potential the potential impact of climate change on the issues on which we tend to focus um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So in my case, it would be perhaps more sexual reproductive health and rights or maybe gender-based violence and safety in public spaces, especially as public spaces are being reshaped and repurposed. This is just an example of the kinds of links that exist among issues that we may not necessarily recognize or have recognized before. So we really need to now start exploring the links that might not be apparent. So essentially, I believe that the pandemic has given us a unique and unprecedented opportunity to reshape the world. And uh, it's really important that we seize it together. Thanks, Melissa. Now, Lena, what are your thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to women's rights and gender equality? Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a God-given gift to the regimes here in the region. The way they have reacted to it is by heightening uh, security, heightening militarization, and basically infantilizing people, infantilizing citizens. And the, the reason why I would think this has been an amazing opportunity for is for a couple of reasons. One, the pandemic has come against a background of revolution. And second, it has come against a background of increasing economic problems and increasing evidence that people's livelihood, especially women's livelihood, especially vulnerable groups, especially LGBTQI, it's basically their, their basic livelihoods are a threat by, by regimes who 
simply couldn't care less about diversity or about feminist policies or feminist ideas. So why is it an opportunity? I think it's because finally we're in a situation where um, I would definitely say we have reclaimed the space and we have reclaimed our voices. And for some reason, which I think at some point we need to reflect about this and we need to research this a little bit more, we really need to understand how this shift has come about. Because more and more I see every day during the pandemic, um, there's less and less fear. And if you ask people who are still on the streets, who are still demonstrating despite the military and despite the fear of the, of the virus, the voice, uh, the expression is the same. If it's either the pandemic, stay at home, or actually face your, 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 your face, face the evil, we'd rather be facing the evil, which is in the form of oppression, in the form of regimes. We've been living quite a long time under um, truly what, what, under the worst manifestations of patriarchy, be it with the states, be, be it with the, with, with the military, which is part of the state, but also religious institutions. And we have now ample evidence that patriarchy is a killer. It's killing all of us. So fine. COVID is there. There's more and more evidence of the of the fact that our states are inept. They are corrupt. They can't face it. The, the only way they can they can deal with it is through more militarization. Then fine. Women have nothing more to lose. It, it's very difficult to continue to accept to stay in the to accept to give legitimacy to such regimes, to such socialist, to such corrupt patriarchal, conservative social institutions. And my hope is that COVID or no COVID, we've reclaimed the public sphere and we've reclaimed our voice and we've reclaimed, we've reclaimed our collective dignity. Thank you, Lena. And Anne-Marie, finally turning to you on this, how would you say the COVID-19 pandemic is changing the landscape for women's rights and gender equality? Well, there has been miles and miles of um, words put together in articles about how awful COVID is for gender equality. But like all the uh, like the other speakers, like Melissa and Lena and Ulemu, yes, it's true. We could we could face a, a gigantic setback. But if there is a silver lining to the COVID pandemic, it's that we can all see that things that we thought couldn't be changed or couldn't be um, kind of renegotiated can be overnight with extraordinary speed and dramatic commitment. So, you know, the giant drop in oil consumption, reduction of air pollution and the introduction of social protection measures that are the equivalent of a basic um, universal wage. I mean, these are these are things that we've been fighting for for ages and we've been told can't be done. We see that they can be done. Um, so uh, this actually, I think, has given a, a lot of us uh, hope to, to say, well, let's let's uh, stop being so minimalist. Let's go for dramatic changes. Um, the covid pandemic has shown that women's role of social reproduction is essential that societies can't function without it so we have to take this realization and make sure that it doesn't get wiped out when um when the pandemic is over um 
this gives uh, women's organi- women's rights organizations arguments about the necessity of more egalitarian economies, um, uh, balancing uh, the priorities of profit making along with the priorities of ensuring safe, humane families and communities. So I think that um, the COVID pandemic has the potential, as all of the others have said today, to actually introduce dramatic change. And for, for that to happen, we have to think about the lessons of, of Beijing, actually, and think about what we were discussing earlier. Why were some of the proposals uh, not implemented? Why have there been such disappointments? And we have to remember that everything, uh, when it comes to dramatic social change, is about politics. Um, as Melissa said earlier, it's also about political will. And the COVID pandemic has shown that women have really risen as leaders, not just the heads of state that are getting all the headlines, but we, but, but because uh, women in many governments are in charge of social sectors, social policy, these are the areas that are suddenly becoming so important. So this is an opportunity to kind of springboard off women's effectiveness, um, in leading responses in social and health and other sectors to actually generate serious change. Now, as, as we know, political change, political effectiveness is not really about our logic, the, 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 the kind of strength of our arguments. It's about emotion and competition. And I think that in many ways, feminists around the world have won the emotional argument. There's so much more acceptance for the kinds of social change that feminists propose. Now we have to get into the competition much, much more than before and make sure that we don't lose this opportunity to compete for and win feminist social change. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for that and to all of you for your thoughts there on the pandemic. And that brings us, sadly, to the end of this podcast. My guests today have covered a lot of ground. I hope the conversation helps inform your thinking, not only about the UN and women's rights, but about gender equality issues more broadly, particularly as we're living through this unprecedented global health emergency. I'd like to thank my guests, Lina Abu Habib, Melissa Upreti, Ulemu Kanyongolo and Anne-Marie Gertz. You can find the articles they've written for the Beijing Plus 25 issue of Gender and Development on our website, which is at www.genderanddevelopment.org. And a big thank you once again to my guests and to you, our listeners, and goodbye.